When we talk about healthcare, we normally think of nurses or doctors, therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists, all different people involved in the care of the patient. But a very important part of patient care is something that's growing in importance as the years go on, and that's pet therapy. Today, we have a very special guest on primary care today here on ReachMD. He's a longtime breeder, handler, owner, and judge in the world of purebred dogs. He's co-host of NBC's broadcast on the National Dog Show on Thanksgiving Day. He's co-creator of Angel on a Leash, a charity supporting therapy dog programs at health care facilities around the country. My guest is David Fry. David, first of all, welcome to primary care today on ReachMD. Thank you. Happy to be on. Happy to share the joy of our dogs in the field of healthcare, and also talking about the National Dog Show and a great celebration of the dogs in our lives. Well, you know, it's really interesting. When you look at the numbers and the institutions, you have Walter Reed National Military Center in Bethesda, Maryland, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, New York Presbyterian, Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, basically all around the world, and particularly in the United States, they're using dogs for therapy. And I wanted to ask you about that. Is it a special kind of dog? Is it a special kind of training? How do you select the pets that we have for therapy? Well, I kind of like to say that great therapy dogs are born, not made, and that the training process is more for the people, the human partner on the therapy dog team, than it is for the dog itself. The dog's got to be, you know, have the right kind of temperament and personality to deal with situations that it may not see in everyday life. But at the same time, a lot of dogs are made for it. Some dogs are not. And some dogs are trainable. So it's a great opportunity for people to get out with their dog, get them trained, and get themselves trained, and do something every day that changes somebody's life. I love the fact that you talk about getting people trained, because that's part of it, too. I know the person who accompanies the pet, I work as a primary care physician. I do rounds in the hospital, and you'll see people bringing in pets. And usually it's the people who are also wonderful. They're not just an appendage to the pet. They're equally important having conversations and showing their compassion for people. They are very important to the process. The people really are. But it really is about the dog. And I'd like to say that my job is to get the dog in there and take care of them and make sure they don't get themselves into trouble, but basically to stay out of their way while they work their magic on whatever the patient may be, whether it's a child or a senior or a veteran, and let the dog do their thing. You know, there's been lots of studies just in the past few weeks about pets and how you can be healthier having a pet for senior citizens, how pets will help. And then one recently which said you may be more successful, more creative. You may even do better financially in your career if you have a pet. I'm sure you keep up with these things and you see when they hit the press, I'm sure. Well, we really do, but we know that your life is different when you're with your animal, that interacting with a dog, for example, increases the flow of the endorphins, the good hormones in your body. It lowers your blood pressure, lowers your heart rate, lowers your respiratory rate, and just generally makes your life a little more health-provoking, if you will. Those are all things that are good for you, whether you're sick or just dealing with your everyday life. Now, we have a physician audience, and obviously non-physicians as well, but This is designed for physicians, our show, Primary Care Today. Tell me a little bit about where physicians could go wrong or maybe not take advantage of a service like this. Is there a way to blow it? I think the idea is it kind of lies with the administrative end of your facility. For years, people who have a dog intuitively know that when you interact with a dog, you feel better. And for years, the administrative folks in healthcare facilities were standing at the door saying, these are the care of a dog at our place. But... As they began to see, as the healthcare professionals began to see what good things the dogs could do for people and patients, then they began to get that message to the administrative people and say, let's find a way to do that. So when we're doing that, we're dealing with infectious control people at the hospital and 
and dealing with the nurses and educating everybody as to what exactly is involved with having a dog come in and what exactly the kinds of things are that you need to be thinking about when you install a program. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Brian McDonough. My guest is David Fry. And in reading through some of your materials, I see where there are 15,000 pet partner teams, but it's interesting. It includes 94% dogs and 6% other animals. Just what is it about dogs that make them effective in this role? I think one of the things is that dogs are spontaneous. It's all about unconditional love, that they accept you no matter what you look like. You might have a tube coming out of your body or a wire coming out of your head. You may look funny. You may not have any hair. The dogs don't care about any of that stuff. They just care that you're there and petting them and being a part of their life. The other animals are not always quite so, are not always quite so adaptable to those kinds of situations. And there's some other issues involved too from an infection control issue, immune issues, for example, with cats. Cats are great therapy animals, but they can't do it in hospitals because of those immune issues that they bring. And dogs are just better suited for it. Hey, it doesn't mean others can't do it. It just means that dogs are best and let's devote our time and energy to, to getting the dogs in there that can be effective. It's interesting in the beginning of the program, you were talking about dogs. I was talking about training dogs. You more or less said a lot of them are born to be good at this. How do you tell that they're born for this? Is it a temperament thing? I think it is kind of a temperament thing. And some breeds are just inherently better at it than other breeds. But at the same time, it's not just about the breed. It's about the dog and its personality and its temperament. And if it's raised in a way that allows it to be positive and accepting of everybody, it's not being roughed with, roughhoused with, or abused, and it's not being trained in a heavy-handed manner, those are the dogs that are probably going to be most successful as therapy dogs. But you find a golden retriever and a Labrador retriever and a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel and a lot of other dogs. And it can be mixed breed dogs too, but generally speaking, you have an idea of what their personalities and temperaments are to begin with. What you have to do is then shape them and train them and get them ready to go to visit these people and do these things. One of the great things that's happened, I think, in the United States and maybe hopefully throughout the world, but I know in the United States in the past decade or so is the whole idea of rescue animals where people are doing what they can to help animals that otherwise may not have had a home. A lot of these are mixed breed animals. How do you tell if they might be a candidate to be a therapy dog? Because as you said, you can tell certain breeds, but again, these are maybe a mixed breed. Well, the tough thing about mixed breed and shelter dogs is you don't know exactly what their history is. You don't know if the first guy walking in the door who's wearing a hat is going to set them off because they were abused by somebody in a hat. You may not know if they don't like other animals. You may not know until they're older that the kinds of things that are in their temperament and their personality and their history, and not at the expense of non-purebred dogs, but with purebred dogs, they're predictable in terms of probably in terms of what their temperament's going to be and their personality's going to be because you know what they're going to grow up to be and what they were originally bred to do. So you know they've got to be have those traits that are appropriate for that. And when you put those traits together with the traits that make them good therapy dogs, it's easier to predict that and easier to train and be on top of it. It's essentially something I maybe could have been imprinted on a dog. You just don't know if you don't know the background at all. That's a good, very good you point. Just, you just never know. We hear it all the time about shelter dogs that come home and they look great. They've been temperament tested. They've been socialized in shelters. But something happens that they couldn't test for or didn't think to test for and suddenly... It's a whole different dog. Now, I don't want to get us off on the, talking about shelter dogs versus purebred dogs because that's not the purpose at all. We've Absolutely. got a lot of great mixed breed dogs, some of them who are rescue dogs that are great at what we do. But 
but it's not always predictable. Like hopefully it could be with purebred dogs. Yeah, to get back on target, you can see how there's a lot of importance in who gets the dog, brings the dog in, and how, with the dog's background. Are there certification agencies that help in this? Is it different communities, leaders? How are these dogs selected? And is there a way to monitor them when they come to the hospital? I know a lot of us as physicians, we'll see somebody with a dog and they're going around, but we don't really know the history. Hopefully the shelters will do a good job of testing them, temperament testing, and doing some socialization with them when they're there in the shelter to help them get ready for a new home. But just because they do that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be good therapy dogs. It means they're going to be good members of the family. And then the family should, I think, bring them along patiently and hopefully take them down that road to becoming a therapy dog. And you can tell when your dog loves people, when your dog loves being with you and doing things with you. And I think that's the biggest first step right there. Yeah. Now, you, in your role, what do you do when you're looking out? Because obviously, this is something that you're helping to drive this initiative as well, and you're contributing your expertise. What are certain ways that you've been helping in selecting therapy dogs overall, not mixed breeds or just in general? Basically, with our charity with Angel on a Leash and the other organizations that I'm involved in, is basically to prepare the handler to protect the dog. The handler is the dog's advocate. It's the person who protects the dog. I've had one of my dogs go in and, well, we were working with somebody who was developmentally disabled, for example, grab the dog on the top of the head and lift him up off the ground. So I've got to be prepared. You can't really prepare yourself for that moment, but I have to be right there and be alert and be ready for anything that could happen. Hopefully, everything always ends well. But again, your job is to protect your dog and give them the opportunity to work their magic on people who are patients or involved in healthcare facilities. We only have a few minutes. I wanted to ask you about the National Dog Show on Thanksgiving Day, a little bit of it, the format and what you do and why people would want to watch it. I mean, it sounds really great conceptually. Tell me a little bit about it. The typical dog show in that there's three levels of competition. We actually have over 2,000 dogs entered in 194 different breeds and varieties. So the competition starts at that level where you compete against other dogs of the same breed. If your dog is judged to be best of breed, it advances into its group. There are seven different groups. But if you have a Brittany, like I do, let's say my Brittany wins best of breed at the dog show, it advances into the sporting group where it competes against other sporting breed winners like the Irish Setter, like the Cocker Spaniel, and so on. And then we have seven different groups like that, sporting, hound, working, terrier, toy, non-sporting, and herding. We have competition now in those seven different groups with 194 different breed winners. And then we get a winner of each group. That gives us the seven finalists that come in at the end of the show and are judged by one judge to be best in show. So it's like an advancing bracket in sports. You win at this level, you advance to the next level. And, and it goes from 194 different reads to the seven finalists and makes for a lot of fun along the way. Now, on this show on Thanksgiving, do you see the seven finalists? How do you get it all locked down into that one show? Thanksgiving Day is the competition in the, at the group level. So we don't see the breed judging so much. But we see the group judging, so you'll see all of the breeds at some point in time, and then you'll see the finals of the seven dogs. It's a two-hour show. You see the seven finalists for Best in Show, and we pick a Best in Show winner. And that really is what it's all about. The great thing about it is, from a standpoint of a viewer, is that you get to see this great variety of dogs, 194 different breeds and varieties. You don't get to see those walking every day in the park. And then you get to watch the competition and say, you know what, I'm picking this dog to win. I hope it wins. For whatever reason. The third thing is I call it the alma mater factor. That if I'm sitting at home with my Cavalier Angel 
I'm going to root for the Cavalier that I see on the show. And I say, Angel, you know, you could be out there too if we maybe gave you a bath every couple of weeks instead of every couple of months. And maybe we did a little road work or did some training or something. You and I could do it too. And that gives us a nice basis to be involved from outside the ring, as we say, watching the dog show. In many ways, it's like, I guess, parents where they're watching the Olympics with their kids going, boy, you could have been a gymnast. You could have done this or that. It's the same thing. You kind of cheer for what's familiar to you or what you're interested in. And one last question. We only have about a minute, David, and that is any moments in your life you've had with patients where you feel or you've heard someone tell a story where a patient was really touched because of pet therapy? We've worked in a lot of different situations at the VA hospital in New York for years and at the Ronald McDonald House in New York City for years and with new alternatives for children, for developmentally disabled kids. The dog walks into the room, the energy changes. You get somebody to smile. You get somebody to talk. hasn't had much to say for a while. You get them to think about something other than their challenges. Bill Sullivan, the CEO at the Ronald McDonald House, where we visited for about 10 years, would always say, if a child is sick, the parents are sick. If you can get the child to smile, you'll get the parents to smile. And often that's enough. Giving them the smile. And then you can work with them on other things like physical therapy and you know, occupational therapy, maybe motivate them to do things that the physical therapist can't get them to do. So I think those are the moments that you smile and think about all the great things your dogs do for people. Well, David Fry, your heart's in the right place. I can tell you're a good person for this. Well, I want to thank you for joining us on Primary Care today. Thank you very much, Brian. It's great to be on with you. And I hope people will think about that and maybe get their own dog involved in therapy dog work. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. If you missed any of this, you can download the podcast at ReachMD.com. I want to thank you for listening, and, of course, thanks to David Fry. Talk to you next time.